0: all right everybody good morning how are we doing fantastic my name is frank i'm one of the pastors i'm glad you're here today um if you're new we're just glad you're here um, i uh Had somebody this week ask me, how would you describe your church? And here's what I told him. This is what I told him. I said, look, if you're here trying to figure out if God is real, we have the answer for you and we'll help you find it. If you're new to Christ, if you're new in your walk, we will help you as much as we can learn to grow. Uh, We'll provide opportunities for you to be in worship to learn how to study the Bible. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, our job is to make you uncomfortable because the answers to everything are in this book. And you get to a point in your spiritual walk where you got to get serious about this book or not. And so I tell people, We are dead serious about teaching you how to read this book, how to understand it, and we actually expect you to obey it, because to know it and to not be looking to transform yourself is not going to help you grow. So a lot of people, me included, every week when we open this book, get very uncomfortable. But we know it's good. And we open this book, saying, "God, please show me how you're going to change me this week, because I'm ready to be changed." Too many people claim to walk with Jesus who have no desire to change. So our church is about learning this book. It's about feeding yourself. And we're in a series called Bible 101. And I talked last week was the introduction. If you want to see that, um, it's on our website. If you want to hear it, it's on uh, Frank Bible Truth Podcast. Um, and it's available on Facebook and YouTube and all over the place. So it's all about how do I learn to study this book? How do, I, how do I learn? It seems like there's so much to learn, I don't know where to start. And so we're looking at the book of Colossians. And I wanna encourage you to open your Bibles, go ahead and find Colossians. Now I'm gonna give you a clue. It's okay to look at the table of contents. It is, you don't have to look super spiritual like you know exactly where that book is. It's only four chapters long, it's only a few pages long. Find out what page it's on. Go there, put your finger there. We'll get to it later, okay? Now, I saw a quote this week that I really liked, and it said this, Scripture is God's house, and God wants His children to play there. Scripture is God's house, and God wants His children to play there. So, as we open this study today, We're going to learn how to study the Bible by studying the book of Colossians. We learned last week about a general approach to study that I call the four C's. They're not mine. Other people call them that too. That help us approach Scripture. And I just want to refresh your memory because we're going to be going over these over and over. The first C stands for content. When you first read Scripture, when you first read a book of the Bible, don't try to interpret it. Stop. Just notice what you see. And just save it for later. You're a detective at a crime scene. Pay attention to everything. What do you see? Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to solve the crime. Just note what you see. Second is context. What did this mean to the audience that first read it? The infant church was in its developing stage in the midst of conflict and confusion in the first century. Paul's writings reflect this. The churches were disorganized. His letters are full of life. Each letter he wrote was prompted to address a specific people with a specific problem. Paul did not write just thinking of you letters. He wrote just thinking of you, and oh, by the way, fix this. He wanted to give them practical advice to handle during difficult times. You see, we make the mistake of supposing that Paul sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write another book in the New Testament. He wasn't writing a book for the New Testament. He was writing a book to a group of people who needed help following what God wants them to do. He was addressing the congregation he was writing to, not some amorphous congregation of future believers who would later read the book. The book is first and foremost to a first century audience. Now in preaching or teaching from Paul's letters, we must keep in mind that He didn't write these letters as academic briefs. He he wasn't trying to provide universal truths, although God did that through him. His intent was to provide practical theology, to to tell a group of people, how do I actually do what's in this book? How do I follow what God wants me to do? You see, because the desire of my heart is to change. Paul, help us as a congregation change. Paul is a missionary, not a professor of biblical studies. He's very practical. Here's what we need to do as a group, people. Here's what's challenging us, people. Here's how we have to move. Third thing is connection. What does the truth of that verse mean today? How do I bring that forward? Does it apply today? And if it does, what truth does God want me to see in that scripture? And then fourth, conduct. Now that I understand this truth, what do I need to do to surrender enough to allow the Holy Spirit to change me? So that's the approach that we take. So let's sort of take a look at this book of Colossians and get a background into this study. Romans, well, Romans, uh, let's see, where do we want to go? Nope, let me tell you something else. This is one of Paul's prison letters. Okay, now let me just give you a little clue. (laughs) This is kind of funny. Pastors always talk about how Paul wrote the prison letters. And they reference that Paul many times was in prison. You know, he did sing hymns, he did reach the jailers, and that's the prison that we picture. But we have to understand that Paul was a Roman citizen. And so when he was arrested in Judea, he actually made a demand to go to Caesar. He wanted to go to Rome. And since he was a Roman citizen, he had that option. He spent time in his entire ministry trying to get to Rome. Rome was the epicenter of the Gentile world. All roads led to Rome, and it was said the sun never sets on the Roman Empire. Like an aspiring actress trying to get to Hollywood, or a country singer trying to get to Nashville, a first century evangelist of the gospel of Jesus had to get to Rome. Paul wanted to go to Rome from day one. Every trade route went through Rome. Ideas from all over the world were explored and discussed there. It's where the thinkers were. If you wanted to change the world, if you wanted to change the way the world thought, you had to get to Rome. If you wanted to understand the world's religions and show people that Jesus is real, you got to go to Rome. Paul had written a letter to Rome already. He hadn't been there yet, but he wrote a letter and it reads like a defense of the faith. It's a very logical argument and a very outline for what does it mean to follow Jesus? It's his explanation of the essentials of what it means to be a Christ follower. If you want to understand the Christian faith, if you want to understand the reasons behind the things Jesus did and the future eternal impact of your beliefs, read Romans. Or you can listen to a series we did a couple years ago. So let's think about the dates here. Paul took three missionary journeys that we studied in Acts last year. Journey number one was sort of a short loop. He took that journey in 45 A.D., basically went out for a while, sort of circled around, came back. That was missionary journey number one, 45 A.D., 12 years after Jesus resurrected. Missionary journey number two was in 49 to 51 A.D., a bit longer, at a much broader loop. Went all the way over to Athens in Greece, Journey number three, just so you can remember it, was in 52 to 57, five years, a longer journey. This is the journey where Paul stopped to be a pastor for several years at Ephesus and others. And it's almost a repeat of the second journey, except he goes more by land than by sea. And I on the opposite side will be. Now notice for our purposes that none of these journeys included a trip to Rome. Rome is way over there on the left side of the map beyond Macedonia. He didn't get near Rome. Yet throughout Paul's writings, all he talks about is how badly he wants to go to Rome. Paul had planned to go there, but he'd been prevented because he has to bring money back to Jerusalem. This is what people don't really understand about Paul and his teachings. Let me share with you. Twenty years after the resurrection of Jesus, the followers in Jerusalem were being persecuted by the Jews. They weren't allowed to be in the synagogue. They were no longer seen as part of the Jewish religion. They were very much seen as their own sect. They were ostracized by the Jewish people and therefore punished by both the Jews and the Romans. People who stayed in Jerusalem as followers of Jesus were under intense persecution during the time Paul's making his journeys. Pastors often idolized the church in Acts as this great group commune who got together and shared everything. That's really not the way it was. In reality, it was more like an isolated COVID lockdown of the followers of Jesus. They had to share everything because they couldn't shop. They had to share everything because they didn't have jobs. They were dependent on people bringing them resources because they could not manage themselves. They couldn't work. They couldn't go to the synagogue. They could barely be seen on the street. They were ostracized by Jews, hunted by Romans. It sounds like because they shared everything, it was just this great, wonderful experience. They weren't allowed to go to any of the Jewish festivals, the temple, the social gatherings. Many followers of Jesus in Jerusalem fled the persecution, and that's what took the gospel to the world. But Paul felt like it was part of his mission to go collect money from Gentile believers around the world and send it back to Jerusalem. His missionary journeys were primarily focused on spreading the word, reaching the Gentiles, but he was also on a fundraising tour. It was very important to him that the church in Jerusalem survive. Romans 15, verse 22. Paul writing to the Romans, he's not yet been there. This is the reason why I've so often hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain." and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Towards the end of the letter to Romans in 57 AD, Paul is 500 miles away from Rome. He's dreamed his whole ministry life about going to Rome, going to the great theaters there, and preaching about Jesus. He says his his ministry life, he's done that. He says his mission plans essentially no longer need him. The church at Ephesus is running, the church at Colossae, Thessalonica, Corinth, they're all doing well. He tells them he hopes to see them on his way to Spain. It sounds like he's planning on taking his third missionary journey to Europe. He's probably only two weeks or so away from Rome. He's as close as he's ever been. No doubt the Romans were beginning to prepare for the arrival of Paul to Rome. He would have been famous by now. He would have also been infamous by now. And Rome loved controversy, particularly intellectual controversy. But then Paul drops a bomb on him. Romans 15, 25. At present, however, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Why? To bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul's talking, he says, look, I got to take this money back to Jerusalem. And then I'll come to you on my fourth missionary trip on my way to Spain. So when the seas allow Paul to leave and return to Judea, he leaves in 57 AD. Now remember, we're still only 25 years after the death of Christ, right? And the Christians are already being persecuted in Jerusalem. It's sent people around the world to flee. They flee to Gentile areas, and then the Romans pick up the persecution in about five more years from now. Now, we know there was never an official fourth missionary journey to Spain. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem when he went back to take the money there. No big surprise, Jews being there were persecuted, and Paul would have been a prime target for the Jews. Paul knew that, and everybody knew that. Paul, the former Jewish leader, the former student of Gamaliel, the former Pharisee, the one who was the, the student of all students, the one who had persecuted people of the way. And now he's become a Christian. He's taking this message, not only to Jews, but to Gentiles. And he walks back into Jerusalem. You can imagine the reception waiting for him. On the way back, Paul decides to stop and see the elders from the church in Ephesus. He had spent about three, two to three years in Ephesus. This was his church. On the way back, he stops and he meets the elders of the church on the beach. Acts 20, 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He turns to the elders at Ephesus and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. It's not going to be good and you're never going to see me again. Verse 36, and when they'd heard these things, they knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he'd spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul's goal is to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, spring of 57 AD. He goes to the temple on that day and is immediately arrested. Verse 30 sounds a lot like what happened to another leader who went into the temple. 25 years prior. Talking about Paul now, here's what happened when he went into the temple. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. As they were all seeking to kill him, the word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers, this is the Roman leader, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he'd done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, others shouting another. Does this sound like anything we've seen before? And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. From this point on, Paul is under arrest until his death. At his trial, his argument was so convincing that they probably would have let him go had he not appealed to Caesar. You see, what he finally said was, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this to me. I have the right to go to Rome and plead my case in Rome. He demanded that they let him go to Rome and preach the gospel. Now, do you remember when Jesus was in front of the crowd? And he turns to the crowd and he says, this man is innocent, what do you want? And they say, crucify him. Acts 26, 30. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who are not our Bernice, Anyway. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, just like Pilate said to, yeah, okay. This man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. The year is now 60 AD. Paul is taken in chains by boat to Rome. It's really his fourth missionary journey. He has a shipwreck at Malta, which is really interesting, but we're going to skip it for today. And he arrives in Rome. Here's what happens when he arrives in Rome. Acts 28:14. Now there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. We call Paul's time in Rome as his prison time. It preaches well, but he's a Roman citizen. Under house arrest, he could go almost anywhere he wanted to go. He could do almost anything he wanted to do. He could have visitors. He could receive gifts. uh, He could write letters. He just had to have a guard with him. It's a lot like having an ankle bracelet on, I guess, today. Verse 23, when they'd appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He's on a missionary journey. This is what Paul does. Not exactly Alcatraz. He lived there about two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul's in Rome. It's in his time of house arrest. It's his Roman citizenship that allows him to preach in Rome. Otherwise, he would have been fed to the lions at the Colosseum because that's where every other Christian was going. They were either being fed to the lions or they were being torched in the street as nightlights. He was in a horrible place for a believer to be, but he's a Roman citizen. It's incredible how God organizes little details of our lives that play out in his mission. Paul was in Judea, grew up Jewish. However, he happened to have Roman citizenship. He knew his time was going to end, though. Don't, don't act like he didn't have any idea. He knew he'd be killed in Rome. He was facing death. He would die at the hand of Nero in AD 64, most likely, because Nero torched Rome and then blame the Christians for it. And we don't hear from Paul any point after that. Do y'all remember what book we're studying, by the way? Colossians. Did you hear me talk about Colossians at all since we started? Not except to say that it was a book written in Rome about 62 AD. That's the first lesson I want you to learn about Bible study. No book stands alone. You don't just read the book of Colossians. You have to understand how the book of Acts ties to the book of Colossians, how the book of Romans ties to the book of Colossians, how all these books were not written independently. They all interact together. If you're not flipping pages back and forth or clicking your mouse, then you're probably not studying because you have to understand the context of the letter. It had to be understood in the historical record of Paul's journeys. And it has to be understood in the context of where Paul is right now. Paul is in Rome. I can guarantee you that's going to shape the way he writes his letters. I know that because I can tell you that depending on what season our church is in, my sermons teach to that season. Paul is in Rome. I guarantee you that the things that are going on in Rome are going to be in his writings at some level. Now, you may have noticed the mission trip maps that we put up earlier. Something odd about that, I never showed you where Colossae was, did I? Let's look at where Colossae is. Now you'll notice that Colossae is really not on Paul's trail. Paul didn't go to Colossae on his first missionary journey. He didn't stop by on his second, never made it there on his third. Paul's never been to Colossae, never planted a church there, never converted a single Gentile there. And yet we have him writing a letter from Rome to a group of people he does not know. Never met. And yet Paul says he constantly prays for them. That could be an important thing to observe before we dive into this letter. This letter is different than Ephesians and Corinthians and Galatians. Paul spent time in those places. He spent two years in Ephesus. They knew him and he knew them. There was a level of trust between them. And they understood that trust was already established before the letter was ever written. In Galatians, for instance, Paul is really angry at them. And without all the niceties he normally puts in the front of his letters, where he's like, you know, I praise God for your faithfulness, I've been praying, all that stuff. Here's what he says I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who you called in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul's rebuking them. Now, I say it all the time that you can't make demands without a relationship. You've got to know people before you can expect them to follow rules. You've got to understand that. That's why God says at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God. The relationship's established. Now, here's the rules, right? If you have a child, you're my child. I can tell you what to do. The relationship's established. There's trust developed. Somebody you don't know comes up and starts telling your child what to do, mama bear is going to attack because there's no relationship, right? How often do you hear somebody say, well, who, is, who are they to tell me what to do? What they're saying is there's no relationship. In this letter, Paul doesn't have a relationship with them. That's different than every other letter. Can you imagine if Paul had written a rebuke like that to the people in Colossae and he'd never met them? You see, when we read a book of the Bible, we have to try to understand the context. We have to look at everything we can look at through the other books in the Bible. And then we learn from the book itself. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to read out of the ESV. Indeed, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not seen me face to face. So Paul doesn't know them. But he knows their pastor, Epaphras. And he's told Paul about the church at Colossae. Now that's a name we need to study and pay attention to. Epaphras. Now I'm going to give you clues as we go along. Things that will help you in your Bible study websites or whatever, so I'm going to give you one right here, okay? Write it down somewhere in that notebook you brought or somewhere else. Biblespeak.org. Biblespeak.org, okay? Here's what this thing is. It's incredible. Speak, speak, S-P-E-A-K, Biblespeak.com. If you ever see a word in the Bible and you don't know how to pronounce it, Biblespeak.com. Every word, every name, every place. Org, I'm sorry, org. Biblespeak.org. Okay? Just a little clue for you. You'll have fun playing with it once you know it's there. So anyway, there's this pastor. In Colossians 4, you can head there, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called justice. These are the only men of circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. What's Paul saying? These are the only Jews left in my group. These are the only men of circumcision. Others are Gentiles. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Okay, so Paul's talking about their pastor. Their pastor is with him in Rome. Now I told you we pay attention to things, right? When we read the Bible, we study the Bible. Why is their pastor in Rome? How long has he been there? Why wasn't he with them down in Colossae? What has he told Paul about his congregation? Because here's the thing we know, Paul only writes letters if something's wrong, right? So this pastor is telling Paul about a church he's never seen, people he's never met. Paul seems to go out of his way to validate the pastor, okay? And at the same time, he's telling them, your pastor's here, he prays for you every day, he cares about you every day, and you have to start asking yourself a question, why isn't he with them then? What's going on here, okay? Okay. We learn that Epaphras is not Jewish, he's a Gentile. He's one of them, he says. And he worked hard for them, not only in Colossae, but in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So that should trigger our mind to go, wow, where are those places? So we dive in a bit. Where are they? Let's look at the map. Now, Colossae doesn't even make the map. But I will tell you, it's just down from Laodicea. Philadelphia makes the map. We know Ephesus, Laodicea, and... Philadelphia because there are some of the churches that the seven letters of revelation are written to. Okay. Now, who is Epaphras and how does he know Paul? Why was he with Paul in Rome and not in Colossae with his church? When was Paul near Colossae? How did these two men ever meet? Paul's never been there. These are the kind of questions you begin to ask. I mean, here's how I know we can all do this. Okay. When you find something on Facebook, You guys are researchers like I've never seen before. You can go to this place and this place. You can find out if it's true or not. You can find out where it came from, who did it, what they, I don't even know how to use Facebook. You guys are like digging in finding the answers quickly. Take the same mindset and apply it to scripture. Where are those places? Don't just skip over the names. Where are they? How do you pronounce them? What can I learn about them? If it's in the Bible, there's a reason these three cities are mentioned. No reason not to. Not a word in the Bible is wasted. You have to learn to process. You have to, what do I see? I see three cities. I don't know what it means. Okay, I need to pay attention to that. Here's the deal. You may study the cities this time and learn about the cities. Three years later, you may come back to Colossians and go, oh, I already know about that. I remember looking that up. What did I learn? Okay, and you skip over it and you move to something new. So let's go back to the missionary journeys. Colossae is near Ephesus. If they're going to meet, it was probably during the time that Paul was in Ephesus for two years. Paul says he's never met them face to face. So we have to find a time when the two were likely together. Because here's the deal. It's one thing to know Paul's in Rome. It's another thing to be in Rome during Paul's difficult time of his near death and be part of his inner circle right? These guys had to know each other from somewhere. He didn't go that far on his first journey. He didn't go near it on the second journey. He came to Ephesus by sea on the second journey, went around the outside. So most likely he connected with Paul on his third journey, which would have been about four years before this moment. And likely he heard Paul at Ephesus, went back to Colossae and set up a church there. That's the most likely scenario because Paul himself says, that Epaphras was new to him, new, well, the congregation was new. Ephesus, the leaders there, spoke of them, remember? Paul stopped by there on his way back to Jerusalem. Remember that? He met the elders on the beach. He told him he was going to Jerusalem. You suppose Epaphras could have been an elder at Ephesus and was with Paul on the beach and knew he was going to Jerusalem, has been following him and taken back to Rome. Is that possible? Yes. Yes. But here's what we learn. Acts 20, 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul tells the leaders at Ephesus and the church at Ephesus, you won't be seeing me again. So we know that Epaphras was not one of those people because he sees him again. So Epaphras is not part of the church at Ephesus. He's actually got his own church down in Colossae. Likely, he learned that Paul was in prison. He went to see him. Paul's been in prison for two years. How do we know that? Acts 28, verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him. What I want to show you here is that most of the time, Scripture interprets Scripture. If you read something in Scripture and you want the answer, most of the time it's in Scripture. It's in another book, but it's in Scripture. Scripture. Okay, so here's what we've learned so far. The year is 60 to 64 AD. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Not sure what Leland's doing. All right, if if they're going to meet, it was likely there. He's receiving guests. He's writing letters. A man Paul knows named Epaphras has come and told Paul about a church that he planted in Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. What did Epaphras tell Paul that would make Paul write a letter? What was wrong in Colossae? What's going on there? What's Paul going to address? Those are the questions we need to be thinking as we read this letter. One of the things we look for in this book is to try to learn what concerned Paul about these people. In addition, we'll learn that this letter was delivered to them by a man named uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. Not Epaphras. That's weird. You would think if Paul was going to write a letter to the church, he would have the pastor of that church deliver the letter. Wouldn't you think that? I mean, suppose this. Suppose that I left and I'm gone for a couple of years. Let's say it was 15 years ago. And I'm hanging out with Billy Graham. Just hanging out with Billy Graham. And Billy Graham says, hey, I, got a, I, I, I want to write a letter to your church. I've never met him, never seen him, but I'm going to write a letter. You stay here and I'll deliver it through somebody else. It's just weird. It doesn't mean anything, but these are the kind of things you need to ask yourself. Why didn't this man take the letter back to his own church? So what do we know about Colossae, the city itself? Because that can help us. The ancient city of Colossae was located in a fertile valley forged by the river Lycus in the Asian province of Phrygia. Centuries earlier, Colossae had served as a center for the valley's prosperous wood and textile industries. Its place on a major trade route enhanced its economic advantage. By the time of Paul, the influence of this place had waned. Neighboring Laodicea, there it is, had replaced Colossae in economic and political importance because Laodicea was on the track that led on the journeys. Okay, just like American cities, if you wanna know why big cities are where they are, they were on the railroads. That's how big cities grew. You want to know why cities grew and other ones fell? It's because they were on the trade routes. Laodicea was on the trade route, Colossae was not. And then there's this place that we learn about called Hierapolis, 15 miles away. Now Hierapolis is an interesting name because it means holy city in Greek. So why is it a holy city? Well, it turns out that there's a Phrygian mystery cult there that has mineral baths and a sanctuary for members of the cult. So this area is getting very interesting, isn't it? We've got this city that's on the road. That's Laodicea. We've got this other city, Hierapolis, which is a false pagan religion worship site. And both those places are growing like crazy. And little Colossae is down here by themselves. Now, let me just share with you that all the information I gave you is in Wikipedia. Okay. Didn't pull it from some rare Bible study text. Type in Hierapolis and you'll get a whole story. And if you know the dates Paul was there, you'll learn and you'll understand. In all likelihood, this letter was written to a small congregation in an unimpressive town that's lacking their pastor. What prompted Paul to write them? What concerned him? Well, this area, this valley, was actually very well known for Jews that had fled Jerusalem. Apparently, Epaphras' ministry was exclusively to Gentiles and viewed by Paul as an extension of his Gentile mission. He likely, Paul likely saw this place he'd never seen as one of his church plants because somebody he had seen and knew went and planted it. Both Paul's writing from Luke and Acts, we know that Paul's ministry provoked the wrath of official Judaism and made it untenable for Jews and new Christians to get along. Jewish believers had a concern. They thought that the Gentile believers should have to follow all the Jewish rules. They had another concern that without the law or the Torah, that these Jewish believers, these new Christians who aren't following the Torah, the law, the feasts, all those things, that they would fall into the pagan religions. That they wouldn't be able to identify and separate themselves. And yet, according to Paul, all believers, whether Jew or not, had been reunited with Christ and they were all one. In this Letter. we're going to learn what Paul says about this. He's going to talk about whether or not they should follow some of the Jewish customs for eating, what should happen with Jewish tradition, the role of Christ in their midst. We're going to learn all these things in Colossians. But the more specific crisis facing the readers of Colossians is the relationship between Judaism and Christianity in the town of Colossae and through this entire valley. During Paul's third journey, He spent a lot of time in this area, mainly at Ephesus. Now, remember, Ephesus is only about 30 miles left. Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people believe in one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Okay. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. Paul did what he always does. He comes to a new town. He goes to the synagogue. He tries to reach the Jews first. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, took disciples with him, and reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Paul goes into Ephesus, He gets run out of the synagogue. He goes over to this place, this place of learning. He holds services there essentially for two years, teaches the truth, and he's caused a huge division in Ephesus. He's in this area for two years. He wasn't just passing through this area. He was living there for two years. It wasn't like he was just passing through and missed Colossae on his one trip. He had many opportunities to go there. God just never let him there. He lived there for two years, and every indication is he'd never even heard of these people. He'd heard of Epaphras. This continued for two years, but he knew of them because here's what the Word says. All the residents of Asia, whole area, heard the Word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So they heard the Word of the Lord. They knew. So as we approach this text for the first time, we have a number of questions to consider things that we look for as we focus on the content. This is the part that's fun. You get all the background information, you get a sense of what's going on in the world, you get a sense of where Paul is, and now you get to start writing down your questions. Let me get us started. Why did someone as important as Paul write to this seemingly insignificant group of believers? Why? What's he wanna tell them? Why was Paul so concerned that he wrote one of his prison letters to these people. He only wrote a few prison letters. Why this one? Why has this letter been persevered, or been saved in Scripture? It's interesting because Paul references a letter to Laodicea that we do not have. Okay, Why is this letter here? Why was Epaphras not in Colossae dealing with the problems, and why does Paul seem to go over the top, validating him to his own congregation? Is there tension there? Why did he leave? Why isn't he there? What about this growing city nearby that's a holy city? How is that influencing the gospel? What is this mystery cult that we learn about? How is that influencing these isolated believers? Why doesn't Paul send the letter back through Epaphras? Why is Epaphras remaining in Rome if his church is in peril? Why does he stay in Rome praying for them instead of going home and ministering to them? The church at Ephesus is relatively solid. Why not send someone from there to go intervene in this church plant? So here's what I want to do. We're just going to be very informal here for a minute. What questions do you have? What have we been learning? Of all the things I've said, what are you starting to wonder? What kind of things have come to your mind? We're all friends here. It's good. Okay. Was the pastor in jail as well? That's a good question. I think Paul might have mentioned that if he was. Hard to say. What else? Open your minds up. What do you wonder? How did they travel? Okay. How long did it take them to get from point A to point B? All roads led to Rome, but how did they actually get there, right? Okay. Those are things that are interesting. Travel in the first century. It could play a role in what we learn. What else? I'm sorry? Yeah, what's the response going to be to the letter, right? Um, how do they perceive Epaphras? See persona non grata. Paul's validating him, and that makes him mad. Is he? Did he heartbreakingly leave them to tell them that he has to go meet Paul because God told him to, and he's there on a mission because God told him to go, and they're supporting him? And we don't know. It could be either, right? It Could be any number of things. What else are you wondering? Who are the two men that delivered the letter? And how do we learn about them? One of them has a book in the Bible, Onesimus. Yeah, just check that out. Okay, what else? What other questions? Okay, did Paul think he was going to die a horrible death like Jesus? Okay. What about the parallels between what happened to Jesus in the temple and what happened to Paul? What does that tell you, and why is that in Scripture? Okay, well, here's something that's very important. Did the Jews learn from their lesson about what they did with Jesus? Well, 20 years later, they're presented with a very similar concept and they fail it again. Is that necessary for biblical justice, perhaps? But here's the deal, and I've preached this so many times. Um, it was God's ordained will. That the message would go to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and there'd be a period. And then the message comes back, and the Jewish people come back, okay? A lot of people out there teaching a lot of crazy stuff about the Jewish people. Uh, There are brothers and sisters, many of them in Christ, and they will be when they return, right? What else do we need to know about this? Yeah, what's the relationship between this? pagan holy city and this city on the trade route? Why did the church exist at Colossae and not Laodicea? Why didn't they move? Is it possible that this little church in Colossae survived because they were isolated? Maybe they don't have the influence of Laodicea. Maybe they don't have the influence of Hierapolis as much as before. See, the church at Ephesus was a church gone wild. If you remember, they had the, the temple to Artemis. They had the the whole pagan worship thing go on. And it was a crazy city, just like Corinth. But here's this little isolated group of people. How do you think they receive the letter? Suppose you're a little bitty church. I don't know, let's say Sarasota. And let's say that there is a very well-known evangelist, let's say Billy Graham. And he writes a letter and he says, hey, Remnant, I've heard about you, Right? How would you, if I said, hey, guys, we got a letter from Billy Graham. I'm going to read it at 6 o'clock tonight. What would you want to know? How would you be listening? What would you be paying attention to? What would you, of course, it'd be amazing now, but I'm just saying in the past, (laughs) right? I mean, what would you want to know? How did this audience receive this? Paul has a, a reputation of being very direct, of not allowing people to be comfortable. This letter is written to them. They're probably a little hesitant to read it, don't you think? What's he going to say? What have we done wrong? What has Epaphras told him about us? Is it true or not? Right? What else do you want to know? Oh, come on, somebody. Was Paul alive when they got the letter back? Interesting. Yeah, we don't know exactly what year Paul died. We think it was between 62 and 64. Okay. Well, here's something I'll give you that just we'll learn later. Um, Was this the only letter Paul wrote and the only letter that was delivered? No. This letter was delivered with two other letters at the same time to different places. We'll learn about that later. Okay. What did this fertile valley have to do with anything? What does what, the river have to do with anything? What, I mean, there's all kinds of questions you may want to ask. You may ask yourself, do these places still exist today? Can I go see them? Okay. That's Hierapolis. Okay. Uh, you can go see that. Um, Colossae, I showed a picture of that before. It's a road. There's not much left there. It's a little town. Nobody The only reason it's being visited today is because the letter survived. So you see what we're doing. This doesn't take like amazing seminary intellect. It simply is, I want to dig deeper. I want to understand the story. I'm not answering anything yet, right? We haven't answered a single thing. We're just paying attention to the context. We're noticing what's going on. We're setting ourselves up to read a letter. We have questions that we're wondering, but we're not in the solve mode right now. We're in the, if you don't ask the question, you'll never find the answer mode, right? Right? And it takes a while to spend some time in this. As you go through your day, think about this place. Think about you know, what the believers thought when they read it. Think about you know, how they responded to this. Did this letter tear their church apart? Did it keep them going? What happened to them? Think about resources you can look at. I mean, all these places are real places. You can read about them You can find out who was there. You can learn all about it from both biblical and non-biblical sources. So this week, as you read Colossians, and just so you know, I read it out loud because I thought about reading it today out loud, um, but it takes about 10 to 14 minutes to read the entire letter, beginning to end. Now that you have the background, I want you to read the entire letter beginning to end every day this week. Don't read it to try to solve it. Don't read it to try to find the most in-depth spiritual thing. Read it the first few times with an idea of what's odd and what's not. What do I need to know and what do I not need to know? If places are named, write them down. If names are given, write them down. And then just read the book. I'm sitting in a first century audience. Hall has written a letter. He's in Rome. Our pastor is with him in Rome. We're a small little church in the middle of nowhere. We're not even on the trade routes. Yet Paul has written to us. What can we see? Ask the Holy Spirit as you read the Bible. Show me what you want me to see. Teach me what you want me to know. Don't solve it. We going to solve it. We're Westerners. I want to solve. It. No, just you're at a crime scene. Everything's important. Pay attention to it. Write your questions down. When you start reading through your questions, you'll think of other questions. Write them down too. It's the process, we call it, of interrogating the text. Why is that there? Why is it? Well, why didn't they put something else there? But the first thing you're going to learn in Bible study is there's a lot to learn. The Holy Spirit wants to teach all of it to you. But first and foremost, we have to learn how to just notice things. Okay? One thing I do want you to remember. You never approach text without praying. Always invite the Holy Spirit into your Bible study. I want you to remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. If you have a question, the first place you go is Scripture. Okay? So let me give you an example. A man named Onesimus delivers this letter. Who is he? Read about him in the Bible. You'll find him. Okay? So here's the deal. So the key here is the first place we go is in Scripture to see if we can find answers, right? So when we looked at like Epaphras, was he an elder at Ephesus? No, he wasn't because he sees Paul now, and Paul told the elders he'd never see him again. Scripture interprets Scripture, right? Okay. Now next week, we're going to continue, and uh, we're going to look at uh, this letter in this insignificant little town in the foothills, Um, and we're going to begin to try to understand how to begin taking what we've learned, what we see, and beginning to start put together some process for how did a first century audience see this? Okay, so this week is all about context, or content. What do I see? Don't try to figure it out, just what do you see? Interrogate the text. That's what I always say, interrogate the text. Okay, so happy hunting. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you... You wrote this book so that we could understand it. You do, however, God, expect us to do some work. You don't expect us just to pick up this book and read it and suddenly understand everything you want to tell us. The Holy Spirit is prompting us to go deeper, prompting us to ask questions, prompting us to understand. God, I I pray this week that you would just put a burning desire inside of every one of us to know your word, to know that we can dive into it, that we can ask questions, That we have the Holy Spirit teaching us. That everything in this book is important to us, not so that we know it, but that we allow it to change us. God, help us to be sponges when it comes to your word. Help us to just absorb everything. Show us in your Holy Spirit, God, how to just soak in your word, abide with you, to be with you, to learn the teachings, to understand, to put ourselves in the picture, to begin to see the wonder of you. God, help us meet you in the midst of these pages. Help us to know the heart of the writer and not just the facts. We love you. We thank you. Please help us, God, come to know you more. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.